0: Hello Conversations with Dwyer listeners. If you are enjoying the podcast but you want a little bit more, you can become a Patreon subscriber and for $5 a month you can get bonus content, bonus episodes, and a podcast that I create solely for Patreon where I talk to comedians about the music that they like. And you get a pin that was created by Charlene Yee of the, the the Conversations with Dwyer logo. So please, become a Patreon subscriber. The link is in my show notes under All Things Dwyer. Or you can just go to themattdwyer.com. Thank you, and enjoy this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Let's you Hello and welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is called Bed for the Scraping. It is by Fugazi, and it is from their album Red Medicine. That came out June 12, 1995. And I'll tell you this. June 12, 1995, I went to my local record shop, which was in Old Town in Chicago, and I bought that thing right away. Every time Fugazi put out an album, it was like a fucking holiday, and I went and bought the album the day it came out. I did that with a number of bands, and I still do. And speaking of Fugazi the great drums that were playing in that song are by Brendan Canty and he is my guest today and let me tell you this not only is it a great episode it was a thrill for me because as you may have guessed i'm a longtime fugazi fan and uh, i and he's also played if if you must know with the rights of springs I, I put it accidentally put an s on there the right of springs which would be a very chicago thing of me to do right of spring uh, is who he played with, as well as the Mathematics meth- and the MC50, to name a couple. He's played with a lot of bands, and he's had a lot of bands. He's done a lot of work, and we get into all of that in this great conversation, and it is really, uh, I, I, I won't lie, like, I was a little nervous because it's somebody I admire greatly, uh, his work, and uh, but he made it easy, and it was a lot of fun, and I laughed a ton, He's a, Brendan is a very funny guy, and uh, I did see them. Also, I saw him play with the MC50, um, and it was one of the best. I, I think I talk about it in the interview. It was one of the best live shows I'd ever seen, hands down. And I went and saw it with my late great friend, Neil Mahoney, who the show is dedicated to. We were supposed to see The Mesthetics uh, when they played here right before the pandemic at the end of winter. I want to say that was December can't remember, but I ended up being unemployed and as a good working-class Irish Catholic guy from Chicago. When you become unemployed, you get real fucking scared, and you worry about every penny because you think your life is going to go to shit. And it didn't. It actually got really good, and I regret missing this show, that show, greatly. Hopefully they come around and I can see them again. Uh, Anyway, this is a really great episode. I think you're going to like it. If you like Fugazi, Brendan Canty. There's been a lot of guests on my old episodes, uh, like David Yao from The Jesus Lizard, uh, Mark Arm from Mudhoney is in the future. If you're into, uh, just listening to all my 90s, L7, I had Danita Sparks. Those are my 90s, but I've had all all decades, from 60s to the, to the nows, I have guests. So please check out my library. It is a rich and wonderful library of past guests. And now, without further ado, please welcome my guest, Brendan Canty. I interview so many musicians now this way, and they always have good lamps. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're cold lamping motherfuckers, man. (laughs) I gotta up my lamp game, goddammit. You gotta, yeah, no shit, man. I don't know. I don't know. I thought you had it all together, lamp wise. I, you know, my mom, like my grandfather died, and he owned a bunch of bars in Chicago, and he had or two. He owned two a bunch. I like to exaggerate, Um, but he had all the bar stuff in his home. He just and then he kept his house like a bar, but he had all this great stuff. And my mom just from like the fifties and sixties, and my mom threw it all out, like great Uh, fucking lamps. Mom, fucking that's so fucked up. I haven't uh, spoken to her since the, um,
1: we are downstairs. Our house is built in like 38 or so. And the downstairs was uh, all a bar, um, with like a, you know, like a bar, like a bar, bar. But we moved into this house and we were the third owners since then. One woman lived here from 47 to 97 and we bought it in 97. And, um, before that, there was a woman who lived here during the war. Um, and I think she was in the Navy, but she had a little bar downstairs and, um, and all these Vargas girls painted on the walls. Like we had, like, I still have like at least 50 of them painted around in the walls, but I got rid of some of them cause I had built out a bathroom, but it's like, uh, it was like 19, 19- whatever, 1940, 41, circa, tempera-painted Vargas Girls all over the walls downstairs.
0: Wow, that's um, wild. I love old bars, even though I don't drink anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't drink either. but <laughs> I think it's because my grandfather owned bars, and so, you know, it was the 70s, so he would take me to bars. And so, a bad thing to do to a kid to make that romantic. It is romantic.
1: There's a, place, it's a good, great place for for comfort and solace, especially you realize that as you become a middle aged man. <laughs>
0: why so many middle aged men go down to the bar? I was doing it, I quit drinking, like a what, but it was like I would do it just to get like a break from, oh my god, the kids. And that's probably, okay, okay. yes,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I agree with why you did that. <laughs> <laughs> Was it like a? Was the bar downstairs like a functioning, like like a cash register? Yeah, speaking. I mean, speakeasy. Nah, I, mean
1: it, I think it was. It could have been at one point. I don't know. I mean, it's. It definitely had that vibe. Um, I've. Uh, there's other houses that are exactly like mine. Two more on this block that were all built at the same time, and they don't have the bar.
0: They don't have a totally, like, <laughs> cool basement. <laughs> have you looked into the history, like, who this woman was or any of that stuff? Because that's...
1: The first one? Well, this neighborhood was actually full of code breakers, you know? It's like that whole scene in the World War II. Like, the house next door had 13 people living in it. It's a three-bedroom house, but it had 13 people living in it during the war. And people would come up and pick them up and take them to their different, um, like, down to the White House or wherever. You know, like, there's there was just a lot of that kind of action going on. This is the actual neighborhood neighborhood. neighborhood where the code breakers lived yeah so um no i mean we don't know her we don't know i don't know her specifically i just know these these things about her that um are evidenced on my walls (laughs) in my life my wife is fascinated by her I'll, i'll send you some photos you can put them up on your website if you have a website
0: i do i would love to see those now that we've talked about it. Do you ever like go to sleep at night and think of some of the salacious things that may have happened in your home 50 years ago, <laughs> 60, or all probably 80? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was
1: probably... I actually... I mean, I don't know. I don't even... I can't even hazard a, a, a guess as to, you know, what kind of scenes were happening back then. But uh, there's a lot of suggestive stuff in the temper paintings, obviously. I mean, you know, like a lot of women in negligees and it's all women, they're all women, obviously. <laughs> the Were there Vargas here, guys? The woman woman who lived here was a woman. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. I'm not going to go any further than that. Okay, I'll let I'll let <laughs> my imagination roam on that one. Exactly. If you hear what I ain't saying, that's what I think I'm saying. Um. Yeah no no it's uh, yeah it's an it's just a it's that kind of neighborhood government town old neighborhood with that kind of those kind of houses in it.
0: Cult of knowledge. Did did you sort of grow up in a like a, a bar culture life like family? Uh, I grew up in a big drinky Irish Catholic family. I
1: was yeah, wondering if Canty was Irish. Yeah, there's yeah Canty McGowans, Lynch's. The Turners, or I guess Turners, about as um, British as you, I, I would think. I don't know, but they're all Irish. I mean, I'm 100% Irish. And um, yeah, there was, there's, I have six brothers and sisters and um, not a ton of cousins. And the first Canties that came here from um, Skibbereen, Ireland, came to DC in 1865. Wow. And I think they went pretty quickly out to the West Coast because most of them
0: were out in California and, and Seattle and Montana. Uh, so. Where did you fall in out of seven? I'm Irish and I'm like, I'm five of five.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, your parents weren't working hard enough now. <laughs> I was, I was, <laughs> <laughs> what,
0: what happened? the marriage fall apart or something? Is <laughs> that what happened? I don't know. I, I can't.
1: Underachievers.
0: I know, right? There was a yeah. family around the corner from us that had like 13, 14. Couldn't even keep, like, I was like, my mom couldn't remember our names. How do you remember 13 fucking people? Yeah, I know. It was
1: always like, yeah, Brendan. It was like, that's everybody's name, right? And the dad was. I have a friend who came from a family of like 10. And he tells this great story of like his mom taking him to Sears to like try on pants for back to school and puts him in the puts him in the um changing room and is handing him pants to try on and meanwhile takes his pants and puts them over her arm. And then um after a while they you know they, they all drive home and she doesn't realize she left him in the dressing room without any pants until she looks over <laughs> looks, looks at his at her arm and his <laughs> pants are draped over the side of her pant, of her arm. God, if if that happened um, these days you'd you'd be all over the news. Exactly. Yeah, so it's kind of like that. Yeah, and I'm number six out of seven. My youngest brother's about to have his 50th birthday. Wow. Um, that's okay. James Canty. James was in The Makeup and the Nation of Ulysses and
0: all those bands. And he plays with Ted Leo. And you have Ted a, Leo. And yeah, you have a brother yeah. who's a novelist.
1: Yeah, that's Kevin. He lives up in Missoula, Montana, um, and he's been there forever and ever and uh, has written a ton of great books.
0: Is there... <laughs> Could there be a connection between the Canty family and why there's such creativity or is that is that a stretch?
1: I don't know. I, I don't know. No, I mean, that's like we came from a house that was, I mean, it was really encouraged. My dad had a lot of, my dad and my mom are both very passionate about the arts and had seen everybody. They went to see music all the time and, um, you know, grew up listening to jazz and classical all the time, played it all in, on on the stereo all the time at home and encouraged us all. Like if, you know, if I wanted to play drums, they bought me a drum set. <laughs> I mean, they weren't wealthy, but it was like they, <laughs> but my dad, my dad played, my dad played piano and uh, everybody played. Actually, my older brothers and sisters were all kind of, Kevin was, is the oldest actually. And he was, uh, and you know, he saw Hendrix like five times. They're all that age. They're like 70 now where they're or ter- about to turn 70.
0: Did I read it cor- correctly that was it your dad who saw the MC5 or was that your brother? My brother, that's Kevin as well. Because I was like, if your dad saw the MC5, they sucked. What? (laughs) (laughs) The irony of you playing with the MC5 fifty years later. Well, it's totally
1: possible that they sounded totally insane and out of their out of place because they were. I mean, for their time, you know. I mean, they were completely like. I don't. I, I can imagine in a setting where people are doing sort of like, especially, I don't know, there's like a mix of things. Like people people could be playing like total blues rock. They could be playing, you know, kind of more mellow people. You know, even Hendrix are probably more, you know, manageable and understandable than <laughs> the MC5s sometimes. I mean, I would imagine, you know. I yeah. Mean, and the, the reason why punk rockers gravitated to the MC5 was because they were out of their, you know, like that. Those records were explosive and crazy, you know, to me. Um, I mean, they were also beautiful and all that stuff too, but I can imagine them not being like the most, um, and they also, it could have been a a time when the MC5 were fucked up and didn't have, you know, and they didn't have a great night, but they played it, um, he saw them at the University of Maryland at some point, which I could not get confirmation from Wayne Kramer about. It, did you, do you remember the way the university of maryland she goes nah i don't know i don't remember that. he yeah. remembers a lot of shit but he doesn't he didn't remember that show
0: yeah it's pretty because i'm I, I work with his charity and i'm friends with him and margaret and oh, yeah. so it's pretty his his and his stories you're just like anytime i hang out i'm like come on what am i gonna get it's the best Hey, that's the best part about
1: touring. I mean, I loved playing with them the last few years, but like actually like at the end of the night when other people were drinking and Wayne and I weren't, and I could sit in the back of the van and just like you know, prime him for (laughs) stories. The best. So many good stories. Yeah. I tell you, man, playing with him was a to- has been a total dream. I mean, I, 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 I love him as a, as I've always loved the MC5. I mean, I could bring up shit and show you in the basement. I have stuff that he doesn't have like, like records, like weird mono pressings of, you know, promo versions of blah, blah, blah. Like I was a super <laughs> record, total record geek and like German picture sleeves of this and that. Um, so when he, and, and, you know, I when I finally got a chance to meet him, I was like super, um, you know, fanboy about it, and um, and I was just like, well, anytime you want to do anything, whatever you want to do. And so we, we put together a, a, a benefit show um, for Jail Guitar Doors down at uh, at a club here, and got a bunch of people to come and play. And I we put together a band, and it was Wayne and me and Mark Sisneros, and I think that might have been it. Am I? Might, I think that was it for the backup band and then Pete different people would come up and we'd back them up all night and that went well, really well, super fun. And then he asked if we could do it again up in Baltimore for some, for another benefit, you know, but just kind of like raise awareness and raise some dough for the, for jail guitar doors. And then, you know, it's like, you know, it's, getting to be your 50th anniversary and you don't want to fuck this up you know <laughs> you know, you got to do something for it you know it's be silly so that was your suggestion yeah that's nice so, so then he said well will you play drums and i said yeah and he goes okay and then he went on and just started like hounding people to come out you know wow that's to, crazy to be, to be the band so, yeah it's so, super fun and so we we kind of became and then we just like after playing a bunch, you know, we've now now I consider him a friend. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you'd only met him within the last
1: for the first five t- years, ten t- years, six years, six. No, actually, what year was that? I think the first time we played together was probably eight years ago, something like that. That's wild to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe,
0: yeah, probably eight years ago. That sounds about right to me. Well, also, I mean, I, this is. For when you say you were like a total fanboy, it's like you're such an accomplished I mean you're Brendan Canty. It's like it's just yeah, wild. I, I
1: mean, but you're going tap into shit like that. But I've been covering MC five songs like uh you know, like Rights of Spring covered MC five, like I want you. And then um we'd all everybody always covered them. I mean everybody always covered an MC five song <laughs> at some point, you know, either looking at you or I want you or um um, and then we always fucked around with borderline cause that's the greatest, the original version. And I had the, you know, I don't know, all those records are just super important to me, you know? Um, and I, every mixtape I ever did had a, uh, had an MC five song on it because, um, I don't know. It just felt like people didn't, pe- people weren't super hip to them. I don't think as much as they became... I mean, The Damned kind of reintroduced them to everybody because they did a great cover of Looking at You. Um, and then I think people kind of dug it to a certain extent. There were always people who were, like, a little older than me, kind of had... They had, like, uh, live tapes and stuff, like this Howard Wolfing from the band The Nurses gave me a great bunch of bootleggy stuff of theirs at one point on the cassette. And so there were people that were hip to them, but it wasn't like this, like it didn't feel like totally foundational necessarily to everybody, I think. Um, So when I, so getting into it and like listening to high times and things like that, and a lot of it was the drumming, you know, I mean, um, you know, Dennis Thompson he's just like, to me, like a total hero, you know, to me. I, um, so I, And I think just the general vibe of the fact that they made great records, which is also a huge deal, you know, as a, as somebody, when you're in a band, if somebody can actually pull off making a great record, it's like a fucking miracle, you know? And also at the time it was like, you know, you're just like thinking of ways to, you know, I mean, you see the bad brains and, you know, and I think, we're, I think basically the reason why I got, one of the reasons was because they, I could tell that they were a phenomenal live band that like live that what they were about in terms of creating like a, a moment in a room full of people. Um, it was what I was looking for. And it's the same thing that like I kind of got hit to when I was like when, when, I, when I first saw the Bad brains, um, and things were happening, and you could see the energy of the of crowd, a bunch of people getting all lit up at the same time, you know, um, and that just feeling of being you know I mean everybody it's why we go to shows is to be in the room and lose our inhibitions and everything, and so the um, they they certainly to me, just had that in spades basically. so when I was when I was when I was figuring out you know early on what I did and didn't like about music, <laughs> you know what I mean like uh, you go see a lot a lot of there's a lot of bands going on and some of them were pretentious and didn't have that happening and some of them you know oversold you know there's a lot of things I didn't like about during the music, but the one thing I did like is that kind of like um, sort of gospel-y like let's bring everybody together and make it happen.
0: Remember, like, those distinct moments where you're sort of going on your path musically? I don't play, but I'm a, you know, I'm a fan. Yeah. And those moments where, like, you hear the MC5 and you're like, what the fuck? What was some of the stuff that you had to navigate through to sort of start getting a sense of what you wanted to do?
1: Is that um, a- like in terms of skill-wise and stuff? but
0: Just, like, the music that was, like...
1: Like what did I have to When you said When I had to navigate through Like in a, in a You know Get past you yeah, know, know, or In a
0: negative I mean it's, <laughs> I guess it was like I mean like When like I, I was had, a like, kid Major like, hang-ups. You had to like I don't know You had to sort of Get through the doors And the and Zeppelin And like that shit Was inundated in my Neighborhood and culture And it was Like to find punk Took a minute oh. And I think yeah, in the- D.C. it was all is all funkadelic and Parliament and that kind
1: of stuff. That's the sort of where I was coming from at the time. Like that, Parliament was um, in in my school, and which uh, is at that time was like middle school, and you know, it was just going to dances at the middle school (laughs) and they're playing you know like a lot of parliament funkadelic because dc was you know dc public schools were majority black and uh so that was my culture mostly and uh, i i got rid of all my when i discovered punk rock i got rid of all my funkadelic records and then like literally within a year or two i bought them all back (laughs) It's like I was like, oh, you don't have to get rid of everything. (laughs) You don't have to erase (laughs) your former self to make this uh, to make the transition. You know, I didn't understand that as a young person. I think it was like it was so much about the uniform, you know, in so many ways. And I didn't know what I didn't know what any of it was about, really. You know, I was like going to Rocky Horror and like you know, just um, you know, super. Everybody was, goop, you know, everything was kind of like hippie, goofy, new wave, punk, all at the same time.
0: You know, it wasn't codified the way it became. And wasn't there a a scene called like Go-Go? I don't know much about it. I've just heard little bits about it. Oh, yeah. Is that very distinct to to DC? DC, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a DC thing. And it's still really thriving. We have these things called Mochella now. Um, which is this guy Yadiya puts on these gigs and he has a flatbed truck and he just drives it around. and He said like these go-go protest things where he just like pulls up in the middle of a busy intersection and suddenly you have like, you know, a few thousand people around dancing to go-go music with a full band. I mean, you have like a drummer, congas, timbales um, horns, (laughs) synth, bass, and guitar. And then at least three people up there singing and, and rapping. And they just like, basically like a lot of, they have their own tracks, but they also do like go-go versions of things. And basically you do, you know, kind of like the beat just keeps going and going and going. And, um, it's a kind of like a, you know, kind of like super swingy, you know, it's like, you know it's like really like it's got this really like on um, the two kind of like cowbell thing going um you can look it up i mean the most famous bands are trouble funk and eu the backyard band now um i'm trying to think if there's any anybody, i mean the eu had a hit with that spike jones movie um school days he had they he put because that was based at howard oh right and, and so he did a song. and They did a song called "Debut," which is the worst go-go song. <laughs> like that's the only thing that. <laughs> and then, but it was sort of started by Chuck Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers in the set around seventy-seven when they started this. They had a song called "Money." I want money. I want money, money, money. You know that song? Yeah, I want moolah, y'all. Yo. <laughs> you <know> that <laughs> that's 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 like one of the first hits that, that, that Go-Go had. And that was Chuck, uh, Chuck Brown. He was a sort of the older kind of jazz player. He put out like Ellington cover records and did a lot of like light stuff, but he had this kick-ass Go-Go band, um, you know, full horn section and everything. And they had, they played all the time around here. He's, he's kind of long gone at this point
0: and those truck is there any license is it just like this fuck it we're gonna do a show on the back of a truck and drive around is there any i think so i mean
1: you should look it up if you go on to instagram and look up Yadia, y-a-d-i-y-a whatever however you say Yadia, <laughs> and then um and then go to um and um uh, and yeah he's mochella m-o-e-c-h-e-l-l-a he actually did some in la like three months ago he brought two go-go bands out to LA did a bunch of stuff out there so it's great the scene is great and it gets played on the radio here like live tapes you know like from board, board tapes of them doing like these totally chaotic shows are um get played on the radio in DC it's just our it is our our, our music for real that's
0: and you started did you start touring at like 15 did I read that correctly I mean, I, I played out of town
1: at 15, yeah. <laughs> That's touring, right? No, I mean, we would go, we would do like New Jersey and Connecticut and New York. That's not really touring. It's just playing a few shows on a weekend when you tell your mom you're staying over at a friend's house. <laughs> but we did play out, I know Brights of Spring played out. We went, actually, Insurrection was a band I was in for like uh, a little less than a year with Guy and Mike from Rights of Spring and then Terry Scanlon, who was the singer for, um, um, Deadline. And, um, he, and we, we actually went up to Hamtramck. We stayed at Corey Rusk's from Touch and Go's grandmother's house up in Mommy, and then played in Hamtramck, um, with Negative Approach. It was total hardcore, total hardcore scene, yeah. you know, <laughs> so fun. Um, but, you know, that's a, But it's that kind of touring. Like you drive 10 hours for a gig or 11 hours, then you go home. You know, it's not like touring. <laughs> I didn't tour tour until Fugazi because, I mean, I would have loved to have toured in Rites of Spring. But Rites of Spring played like once a month, you know, for a year and a half. And that was about it. Maybe twice a month, one, one month. But it wasn't that kind of operational unit, you know. And all the, it was just basically the desire to tour was always there, and playing shows was always super important. So, eventually, after all our bands, you know, split up after Rites of Spring split up, after One Last Wish split up, after Happy Go Licky split up, I was like, fuck. Like, I need to tour, you know? I really... I was, like, dying to get the hell out of D.C. I love it here, but it's really boring. And so, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I yeah, like, you have to... Get, and if you're playing music, you want to play it more than once a month, you know what I mean? I wanted to try it. And, you know, um, Minor Threat and all these bands were, like, actually hitting the road, you know, and coming back with, like, great stories. And so, I was like, fuck, I got to get out of here. So, finally... Um, after all that, after everything had sort of like fallen apart, you know, and uh i I don't want to call them failures because we wrote some great music, but we were never able to get it um it's in parenting terms, I would call it failure to launch <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but um, you know, so by the time you know you know everybody was you know i I was twenty Ian was twenty four and, um, you know, Gee and I had been in a few bands together and we're both kind of frustrated. And so the functionality of Fugazi, it just seemed like the right, it seemed like, um, it was trying to hitch our, everybody felt like hitching their wagon to each other in because everybody was so burnt, uh, burnt out and ready to tour and ready to work. So
0: most of Fugazi was based on that premise. Yeah, I've read that you would go out for like two two hundred shows or something insane like that. We played a lot,
1: some 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 years more than other. I would say it's more like half half the year. I think it's probably safe to say one hundred and some show, one hundred sixty shows or something like that. Because you know, it felt well. I'll tell you what it felt like. It felt like two months on, two months off, and sometimes two months off, one and a half months off. So. Um, you know, you go over to Europe for two months. You go to do the States for two months. You go over to Asia and Australia for like six weeks or something like that. Um, go to South America. And we kind of just did that loop, you know, Europe, South America, Asia, United States, clockwise. And then in um, on our time off, we'd just write. We would just sit down and try to write the next record all the time probably played
0: practice about three days a week five hours at a time that's and you're t- t- you that's starting at when you're 20 did you have any idea like what was that like is it 20 did you realize how rare or special that was or were you just like along yeah I, I kind of felt like my relationship
1: with gi and, and and eventually with ian and joe was very was super special i mean i always appreciated that aspect of it, you know, was that I was, I felt like I was in the presence of people who are really inspiring to me. And that's like, that's a huge aspect of why my great motivating principles <laughs> are to like, are to be, uh, you know, to, to be a support staff to people who really, you know, who I believe in. I mean, really honestly, like that's to this day, when I get into a project or I work on something, i like, that's the feeling I'm looking for is like, just to be like, I mean, I want to be a collaborator, but I don't, I'm not trying to shove my shit down people's throats. I mean, I'm really trying to like be a, a supporter and a somebody who enables things to happen more than anything. Is and that, so I feel, and that came from, well, that came from like, you know, time off the stage together with people. Right. I mean, you just be, it comes from like friendships and community and like being, I don't know why I always use that word community. It drives me crazy that that word at this point. It just sticks in my craw because people—it's so lazy but it's it, cause it cause it really like the community that I'm talking about feels it is actually human beings
0: <laughs> yeah every every online ad now for some dipshit app is like join the blah 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 community I'm yeah, like you community. Just, you've, another word just ruined <laughs> but, <laughs> it's true though right it's driving me
1: nuts when it comes out of your own mouth it makes me want to fucking throw up <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah so that's 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 the you know um it's a you know, D.C. Um, was, was a small town. I mean, it really felt like a small town back then. Um, and kind of knew everybody, honestly. And, like, Ian went to Wilson, and, you know, I ended up going to Wilson, and my kids all go to Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone named Wilson go to Wilson? No, nobody named Wilson. <laughs> but they did just recently name the cha- – they changed the name of the school from Wilson to Wilson. <laughs> From August, they changed it from Woodrow Wilson High School to August Wilson. Oh, okay. <laughs> Total cop out. Yeah, they're trying th- to get him to cha- name it Marion Barry High, but nobody was buying it. <laughs> uh, next, Wilson Pickett. I don't know. Oh yeah. Oh, that would have been awesome. I couldn't think of Wilson High School named after Wilson Pickett. <laughs> We're going first names now. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just change it to Woodrow. <sighs> Woody. Just call it Woody High. Yeah, Woody High. That uh, d- 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 oh, implies kid. Woody Allen. We don't need... That's a bad idea for a high school <laughs> name. <thing. laughs> <laughs>
1: well, someday. <laughs> Uh, once, uh, his transge- once his transgressions are truly forgotten, we can name a
0: children's uh, school after him. I room. mean, this is America. If he just gives enough money, I'm sure you know you could get anything. <laughs> you just say it, just say it over
1: and over again. That's what they're doing these days. It's a great idea. It's a great <laughs> idea. It's a great idea. <laughs>
0: The, did did the other members of the band have that same because I found that interesting when you were saying my that you were there to support is that was that sort of the group think of the band of like let's all sort of support and be behind one another? Yeah, I think so. I mean,
1: I don't know. I, I have a hard time speaking to other people, <laughs> honestly. But I, I don't know. I'm... <laughs> i mean i felt supported by I just, may it felt like a very we were incredibly close and still are to one another yeah i mean we still communicate all the time even if it's just a you know group text or em group email setting stupid youtube videos <laughs> right but isn't that what we all do at this point
0: yeah yeah I can, i've gotten <laughs> to the point where i can't even talk enough like somebody calls me and i'm like fuck man i don't want to talk yeah I gotta do other things I will say like One of the great
1: things To come out of the MC50 Is our great group chat or, Our text chat With each other
0: It's constant <laughs> so. Who's all involved Is Danny Bland in that too Or is it just the musicians Yeah, oh, yeah Danny's the best Yeah You, you know Danny yeah, I've known Fuck He's done the podcast twice Or, or three no, times really? He's done it three times Cause he's got Shit. three books out
1: He's amazing. He would sit in the bus and he just waited for me to say something like, like slightly straight edge. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, you just did it. You just did that thing. That, that like moralizing DC thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that guy. He uh, yeah, he's one who I can't. He's just, like, dropped small tidbits of, like, stories, and I'm like, like, and you'll get on the edge of your seat, and then he'll move on, and I'm like, I want to I hear that. Usually it involves the word scoring in and, <laughs> and not yeah, music. Yeah.
1: Did you read his
0: book? <laughs> his book's great. Yeah, yeah, that's the first time he had on. Margaret actually hooked us up, um, and she was like, oh, you have to have this guy on, and I think instant friends. I've, I'm in touch with him almost weekly, and sometimes I'll walk my dog and have long, long Danny Bland Talks of wisdom. Well, shit, I'll have to call him. I don't ever call him anymore. Yeah. um, Well, he will, he pushes that. He will, he'll get sick of texting. He's like, all right, call me. And I'm like, okay. So, which is good (laughs) because it's actually better for me mentally than texting. But I like to spiral and feel shame and guilt because I'm Irish. Yeah. (laughs) I hear you, my brother. (laughs) Do you feel like that? Like, I know he was joking about sort of the, moral D.C. thing. But do you feel like that's something that people got a... I don't know, like the perspective of that got lost a little bit, or... I don't know. (laughs) 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 With people? You mean from... (laughs) Well, like uh, outside people, like, you know, like anything... I
1: don't know how outside people think of us, you know, or think of me, or think of Fugazi. I mean, it's... Man, I tell you, I can't fuck with that. You can't... I mean, I couldn't go anywhere near the kind of images that people have of the band and the people in the band. I I just don't, I would never try to inform that is what I'm saying. And I don't try to understand it. And I know it's wrapped up in a lot of things for a lot of people. It's wrapped up in their own personal, you know, participation in our live performances. And it's their own participation in listening to the records and the artwork that we put out on the records and the film. And there's a lot of, um, like any band like meeting you you're you the best you can hope for is to meet people halfway where they bring half they bring their desires and personality and and analytical skills to your artwork and what you don't want to do is fuck with that and like get in there and mess it up by <laughs> over literalizing things and you know and uh you know talking them out of liking you or talking them in- <laughs> lot trying to like you you know <laughs> i mean there's not there's no um yeah I, I to me that's like kind of sacred that sort of like um you know the translating of the of the band and the art and everything like that now i guess i guess it could be argued that we actually you know did do certain things we did open our mouths and actually did political things and you know a lot of them so i mean i, I guess that's somewhat open for discussion but um in terms of people's perception of
0: us um i'm assuming it changes all the time yeah i miss more political fueled music i don't feel like i mean i feel like it's a lot in hip-hop but i don't see it happening as much you'll see people post about stuff but there's not a lot of like action like let's organize a concert like
1: yeah we have it more in dc i mean it happens here Yeah, The positive, positive force is still going and people, you know, and things like this go-go thing, which is like, that's a full on protest, you know, kind of machine. And especially during the Black Lives Matter protests, that was like a huge part of it. Music was a big part of it. Um, But I don't, again, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say about it in, in general. Right. I guess, yeah. I guess. I guess. I guess. I just. I don't. I don't really. I don't have any good way to uh, like kind of. I just don't want to put words in other people's mouths and suppose I have any idea about what they're thinking about.
0: That's going to ruin the is. last five minutes of this podcast because I was going to name a name and then I wanted you to put words in their mouth. <laughs> okay, let's go. I'm ready. Woodrow Wilson. Um, but you did mention film, and I was because I was interested did you always have an interest in film or is that something you moved towards did that was that like a gradual gradual happening
1: i you know i I always had an interest in um, putzing around um, well, okay, I have two sides of my film stuff. It's like I actually make films, and then I actually do audio and sound on films and do soundtracks for films and, and television. Um, and because I have four children, I will do any of those all the time. Whenever anybody asks me, I try to do any of that work. I love doing... I really love doing it, and I could
0: do it from home most of the time, and I can hang with my kids more. So... Um, I, I don't mean to bring this up, but four children—what are you, an underachiever? <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> I'm
0: working on
1: it. You gotta. I well, my mom? Like she started having like the second batch of kids at like you know 38 or 40. Wow. You know? Yeah. So she was having. Cause she kept spitting them out in groups. I think
0: <laughs> she started early. She was 20. Man, yeah, when she was 21. Yeah. My mom was 17 when she got married. That was that era. I'm like, wow, I'm 52. So I'm not too far behind you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. 17 is really young though. 19.
0: Yeah. My dad was 21. I couldn't, couldn't imagine getting married. I did get married at 21. That didn't go so well. I'm (laughs) (laughs) not who the person I'm married to now is that person.
1: Yeah. Right. 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 Um, Anyway, I don't know what was it. What was I? What were you asking?
0: Oh, the film. How how you? Because you score films and television. Yeah, and you sort of I basically, direct. I basically got into
1: scoring, which is mostly what I do for for money is scoring and and uh, sound design and stuff like that. But I got into scoring when um, I guess there were a couple a couple. A, I guess my my friend Teresa Duncan asked me to start scoring, asked me to write songs for her children's CD-ROM thing, which is, and she had Ian Sfinonius doing the artwork, and so I wrote a bunch of songs, um, for these CD-ROMs for girls, um, named one was named chop suey the other was zero zero and i can't remember what the third one was called anyways it was great because i was living in a group house with a bunch of punk rockers and we could just go in the basement and just i got everybody i got, got kathy wilcox to sing the pancake pancake song i got Guy to sing the monument monuments of mars song like there were all these songs that i was writing that i got all my friends to 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 sing and play on it was really a blast um and um and then when so, then a friend of mine, Kurt Zienga, went on and um started producing films for Discovery. And he said, Do you do you do this soundtrack? And I go, Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I've done children's CD ROMs and blah blah <laughs> now, Kurt Kurt, is, Kurt did the first two or three three Fugazi record covers. And he had a magazine called Greed. And he was, you know, a little older than I was, and he started producing um uh films for discovery channel and he he now does the history of horror on a and e are you a horror film fan
0: i'm not like an avid fan i enjoy
1: them anyways he does this show called the history of horror which he directs and then he also does because you're a podcast guy he does the history of horror podcast where he just interviews like all these um people we're in directed and we're in horror movies over the years anyways. So he got, he brought me on, I was just do, I was just basically like had a Tascam 58 and a stopwatch. I didn't know there was no computers, no, you know, I was just basically like writing a bunch of music and putting it on a, a a DAT tape and sending it to him. And then he was putting it in his shows. So, um, and the first one I did was called Buildings, Bridges, and Tunnels. It was super dry, um, but really great, really fun. I totally loved it because it's like basically like you're doing like four track demos, you know, which is something I've always done I sat in the basement and like just, dem, you know, wrote written things and noodled around and played. I play a whole bunch of different stuff. So, um, and then it, I just it just kept going. I mean, I just kept going. Like, you know, I'd just say yes to anything, you know, like an Abrams tank documentary. Yes, I'll do that. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, No problem. I'll do anything you want. I did that prison series, hard time for national, national geographic for four years. And like all the music for four years on hour long shows. And that was a blast. And I could started employing people to come in my friends to sort of working on work on that stuff. Um, they've done some stuff for like some of those 30 for thirties.
0: Oh, that's such a great great. series. And I'm not even like a big sports guy, but I'll get totally lost in one of those.
1: Great filmmaking is great filmmaking. It doesn't matter what it's about, you know?
0: True. Did you ever think like when you were on those big long right to spring tours that went on (laughs) for for, for 48 hours at a time, (laughs) did you, did you think that that's where you would be? Was that ever enter into your head or did that just be like, oh yeah, okay, I'll do that. It just arrived.
1: Um, it kind of, it crossed over with, with it, it, it crossed over with Fugazi. So I started during Fugazi, but I started having kids and I started freaking out that I was not going to be able to support my family, you know, that I wasn't, I could see I wasn't going to be able to tour as much as I was going to, you know, so I had to do something. Um, And back then they kind of, they did, they paid you something for it, you know? Um, so I just felt like I should give it a shot. And so I like brought, you know, I brought, I finally bought Pro Tools and when it was just two, you you know, two tracks at a time, it was really early and they gave you a giant phone book of a manual with the program. (laughs) And I took that on tour with me and I just read it cover to cover and learned Pro Tools and, um yeah man just started just just started doing it because I thought it would be a good fallback plan when did you start directing I mean directing is really like that was just an outcrop of like my desire to document bands really I mean most of the movies I've done are, are that except for the liberation which is like a certifiable like you know documentary that's about like the DC Central Kitchen here in DC um which is like a culinary job, job program for uh, ex-offenders and things, you know, so we, my partner in crime, uh, Christoph green, we started a production company called Trixie and we started, we, he and I started making films together in 2004. So right after Fugazi stopped playing live, um, we were working together on the carry campaign. Um, just, I was doing audio and music and he was doing graphics and, the cameras got better real quick. Actually two things happened. I think I've told the story, so um, if you've ever heard a podcast by me, you can fast forward fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but but for real, like we there were there was a lot of loss, right? Like I stopped playing in Fugazi Fugazi. Um you know, Elliot, I think Elliot Smith had died right around that 2003 or 2004. And uh, we were, um, I, I, I remember watching the video that, um, that Jem Cohen made because Jem was somebody I always looked up to for a lot of reasons. And he's also went to Wilson, (laughs) everybody else, and, uh, Wilson (laughs) pig, Woodrow Pickett High. Um, and they, and he, uh, so he he had filmed uh, uh, Elliot with just a mic and a, and a, and a, and a guitar in his room and they put it out as a promo as a three song. It's called, I think it's called Lucky Three. Um, that's up on YouTube. You could see it, but it's, um, and I was like, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. I just want to document music you know I just want to like get good quality simple music because now because the cameras all the digital cameras were coming turning. they're suddenly like filming 24p you know so they look like film um and they're accessible you can buy one for a few thousand dollars and so we just got like people together and I reached out to all my music people that I knew and we put together these things the burn, burn to Shine where we just went from houses to house uh, that were, found houses that were going to be demolished and had like gigs in them throughout the day had like 10 bands throughout the day just one song each and filmed them demolished the house and put it together in a DVD and then um, and Corey at Discord um, I mean Corey at Touch and Go um, from earlier in the instruction tour, Corey, <laughs> he, um, he, um, he put, he put them out as, as DVDs. Um, and, and yeah. And uh, so I, that, that kind of started me like just through the wanting to document these sort of, um, what would you call it? I want to call this, I want to say transient, but when you call bands transient, it sounds like they're homeless, <laughs> but they're, it just means, you know they're they're just temporary groupings of people, and there's you know they're temporal. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and uh, I wanted to document them before they disappeared. I I, th- I thought like you know there's a lot of a lot of the great music scenes in the world were documented because people gave a shit enough to press, play, and record. And That's all you needed to do really is just to have it on like the Ethiopian music seen in the 60s, you know, or D or DC, like D, the the fact that uh, Don Santara had a four track in his basement that he learned how to use in the Navy, you know, and he set it up and then suddenly the bad brains are recording there and then minor threat. And then, and that's, you know, that, that, it's that kind of motivate. That's what motivated me. It's just pure documentation of trying to get these people. To, and I'll, and there was another thing, actually, the one aspect of it that I thought was kind of, interesting was that there was, uh, I had, we had one person in each town curate the thing. Um, and so in that way, it, even beyond the groups of, there's just inside, internal, internal bands or the individual bands there were, you got the sense of, I'm about to say the C word, community. <laughs> you got the sense of, <laughs> the what, what the vibe you know and it contextualized bands it contextualized people like any better context or um wilco you know it's like suddenly you see like oh wilco's not just wilco wilco's like part is they're from chicago they're part of this town they they have all these are their friends um and i think that's an important thing to remember no matter How people turn into icons or get how famous they get, they're they're still people and they still are like, I mean, they're alive, they're functioning and alive in this world because they give a shit about music, you know, most of them.
0: Yeah. I remember when the uh, Burn to Shine came out and it was, I mean, I heard it word of mouth and people were, you never burnt the place down, did you? We burned it down in
1: D.C., we burnt it down in Portland, and that's it. I think that everything else, was, everything else was like a backhoe. And then it, and then
0: Seattle, somebody fucking came and saved the house, which is a total bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have, like, uh, permits to do this, or were you just like, fuck it, we're going into this yeah, house yeah,
1: yeah, we, we kind of, we the burning we ha- you have to do through the fire department. The fire department... Um, it uses the house as a controlled burn, ah, basically. So that's, that's how we, we, in fact, we got to the house in Portland and in D.C. Well, the reason it started was a friend of mine, Pat Paddock, was a volunteer firefighter in Bethesda, and he bought this house from his neighbor who was, had died standing up in the house. I, I don't know why I mentioned that. <laughs> she was 98 years old. They found her standing? They found her dead standing on her walker. Because
0: that's interesting. That's why you brought oh, is
1: that, it up? Something that can? Ha- I didn't know it could happen, but he says for sure that's what happened. Either that or I don't know. Anyways, but he, he, um, and he, so he did, he was friends with his neighbor, but he bought her house and he's going to tear it down because it's teeny and it's like on this like really nice piece of property and he's felt bad about it. And he said, do you want to do anything with it? And, um, and this was what
0: I came up with So it's a it's too bad she still wasn't there for the show (laughs) (laughs) she was in a way i mean part of it was this like
1: this feeling because it that sort of tenuous nature of everything at that time extended to little cute houses i mean there's like you know you know the house that's like worth more you know, destroyed than it is as a house, you know, I mean, the land is worth more than the house and that's what happens. It's happening all over the place, but it it was really happening in 2004, um, in DC where they were just ripping down things and putting things up. It's all, I mean, it, it happens everywhere, but being a fan of architecture and being a fan of cute houses and historic houses, I was, I felt like part one thing we could do. And my friend Lois Maffeo said this, um, at one point she's like, we can't, you know, the future is just going to, we're going to have to be, we're going to have to be okay with like that archiving things or, or saving things is documenting them, which is, um, which is, it's all we can do really is like, if you see a house you love, I mean, you can try to save it if you want to, but you should at least document it as well as you can.
0: That's yeah. That's something I think about a lot. I almost, started a podcast about because so many old bars and restaurants are closing places with history and like yeah. especially in like San Francisco they just can't afford to hang oh, on so bad and San it, Francisco's such a train wreck for that it's happening here too they're tearing down an old restaurant to build a uh resident like luxury apartments with retail space, which is like that's all they build now. Yeah. And it's like how much fucking retail space do we need? <laughs> it's like Yeah, I know. We're just gonna,
1: it's about to be DC's about to be totally torn apart in that same way. Our largest movie theater is is shut down during COVID, right down the street, the place I lived at when I was growing up, the uptown theater. Um it's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous theater and I think it's gonna I think it's gonna get torn down
0: or at least gonna get it's gonna be have a facade job gone you know, done to it I, that's that it irritates me that they're like well the facade's still up but it's like yeah but that's one yeah. part of a, especially those old th- gorgeous theaters like that's yeah I wonder if there's yeah. cause there was an uptown in Chicago that was also I think that's still there but still like you know then they just but they put up the facade and then it's like a mall filled with Nike shoes and shit
1: Yeah, no, I mean, they did it in D.C. it was this, they were all CBS drugstores, and then they would write into the contract that they couldn't become a movie theater again, again, for just, just to be shitty. Yeah. We used to have so many movies. I mean, not surprising that we don't have movie theaters, but we had so many movie theaters here. It was ridiculous. I mean, I spent, there was a movie theater called the Circle Theater, that everybody like George Pelicanos mentions it all the time. And um everybody like who grew up here is like, oh my God, if we could just have one thing back in DC, it would be the circle theater, which is like every it would have double features that changed every two days of of old movies. And so you'd have like, you know, whatever, apocalypse now and deer hunter. <laughs> if you wanted to see if you wanted to see five six, hours exactly. of carnage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was two dollars to get in and a dollar if you came before six o'clock. So it was it and it it was just it was just eternal. Like we went there at least three times a week <laughs> for most of Yeah. Most
0: I of. I don't wanna be the older guy who's like, Yeah, it was Better or whatever, because it's not, or maybe it is. I don't know. But, like, there used to be a movie theater that if you brought bottle caps from your certain soda, you got it free, and, like, it was the same thing. It was like you'd see these double features, and you would see, I don't know, it just seemed more magical than, here's a theater with 20 theaters.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll take one of those, too, at this point. I mean, we don't even... <laughs> Actually, I guess we have a we do have those anyway. We have we have some good theaters here. We have AFI here, which is nice. Oh, that's great! Yeah, and there's actually a new movie theater called the uh, what's it called? The Miracle that just opened. I just noticed a new movie theater opened up downtown. So we'll see. Maybe now that retail's like dying, you know, maybe a lot of those places
0: will become affordable to, to the theater and to, to people like that. Yeah, I was wondering if it's just gonna be movies like, if COVID taught people like, hey, it's okay to watch, like, got if people got used to watching movies at home, like if, but that speculation has always happened where they're like, this is gonna kill the movie theater, and it's like they kind of yeah. seem to, because you know why, community. Yeah, baby. <laughs> now you're talking. The C word. <laughs> Uh, you st- but you still tour a lot i feel like at least in i I don't think i'm touring anymore well I not <laughs>
1: but, i toured like the last three years before covid hit like on when covid was hitting i was on the way back from australia with the mc50 we were opening up for alice cooper over there um and uh which was totally nuts yes it was totally nuts um but when I was coming back, it was all falling apart. I mean, like the, the, you could see it happening everywhere. I mean, and I mean, COVID is what I'm talking about. Um, New Zealand was the only place that was really taking it seriously, but you would have to like wait in these really long lines to, to be, they were actually screening and that's why they got through it so easily. Um, but yeah, I was touring a lot. I was touring like six months a year again, you know, cause I was doing that. I was doing MC 50 and, the mesthetics and the mesthetics were going mad for like a couple of years there. And then COVID hit, and I, fucking, I really haven't played drums in months. You, you, don't, done, you don't sit behind the kit and fuck around? I don't have my studio. My studio was part of a, a, on the top floor of a restaurant, and, the, and it closed during COVID. So I lost my studio. And all my drums are packed up in the garage and I just haven't, I mean, I played in the studio uh, qu- twice since, since COVID. I did like the single with Mike Watt and then I did um, this record with Brian Baker and Mike uh, Hampton um, at a studio. In, and, um but that was just like a couple days, you know, I was just doing like a few songs, sling drums on a few songs. So, so no, normally I play all the time and I in the, in my studio all the time and now I'm in my living room with my lamps.
0: <laughs> I'm lamping in this in my living room. Do you miss it at so, all or are you just kind of like I mean,
1: I miss it but I mean you know I mean like I I'm, I'm happy that I have other sh- you know stuff I can do. I mean I'm I'm happy to exercise other other things and you know, and it was hard because I, you know, I was terrified last year, you know, and we'd had, we had, I my wife's a nurse, so she was on the front lines of this whole thing. She got COVID. My son, Leo, got COVID. Uh Everybody's fine. But, um, there was a terrifying bunch of times because she was actually in, she was going in all the time and like more than ever, um, so there was that, there was the fact that, you know, all my income went away immediately, which was really, or not all of it, but you know, enough of it that I was totally freaked out because I have two kids in college right now. <laughs> so it was like, everything was overextended and everything was on sand, built on sand. All of a sudden I was like, oh, this whole uh, touring in your fifties thing is, really leaves a lot to be desired in terms of stability a fickle mistress is what i would call rock and roll this year it definitely was felt like the thing that i i i um i just like oh man i really got to get back to doing more video work because i i need to have something more stable you know or i need to have any work at all honestly i'll be frank with you though it was uh, you know i had to pivot really quickly. And I ended up doing a lot this year. I mean, a lot of weird stuff like the NASA space launch and stuff like that, you know, doing like the music for that. I'm doing a lot of voting rights stuff now. Um, You know, did a a series, started a series for the NBA. So all sorts of stuff. Once you get freaked out enough to start reaching out to the people who you work with, you're like, Hey, you got any, (laughs) Hey, what's happening? And then everybody, you know, so there was work happening but it took but it but it was terrifying for a few
0: months there thank you very much for listening to conversations with the wire please become a patreon subscriber if you like also subscribe to the show on your iTunes or what have you, not and tell your friends about the show, that would mean a lot to me. As well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or the mattdwire.com or conversations with Dwyer at the Instagram, and you could learn more about the show, buy merch, and all those great things. Thank you very much for listening.